as we conclude this series from Philippians. Chapter 4, somewhere in here, chapter 4 from Philippians. Um, The text will come specifically from verses 15 through 23, but I will begin reading this morning at verse 10. Hear now the word of the Lord. But I rejoice greatly, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving but you only. For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. The word of God for the people of God. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we gather before your word now, thankful for all that you have provided in and through your word. And we acknowledge the truth of our confession that while we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of your holy scripture, and the heavenliness of the matter, and the efficacy of the doctrine, and the many other incomparable excellencies, these are all arguments in which scripture evidence itself to be the very word of God, yet our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority comes only from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. Therefore, we ask you to send your Holy Spirit to attend both the hearing and the preaching of your word, and to be ever with us as we come to your word day by day, planting it deeply within the soil of our hearts, which you have prepared And this we ask in the mighty name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. And so as we come to the end of this little epistle to the Philippians, it is both with a sense of satisfaction and yet dissatisfaction. There's there's always more that we would want to glean from God's holy word. There is so much more I want to impart to you and to have you be intrigued by and to apply to, the, to your hearts and to your lives. 
And as we survey the entirety of the text of this wonderful letter to the Philippians, there is, there is a thematic coherence that helps us to know the heart and the desire of the Apostle Paul. I think that the thematic coherence could be well expressed in its most concise form as joyful participation in the Lord. Now, growing up in a church, in a liberal denomination, though I didn't know it at the time, I would occasionally hear dismissive comments and observations along the lines of, well, that's just Paul, or what Paul wrote only applied to his particular cultural context. Perhaps some of you have heard these sort of comments implying that Paul's teaching on covenantal headship or authority or the role of women in the church were no longer applicable today. He was often cast as a rigid, cold authoritarian who could only speak from a masculine perspective and who looked down his nose at women. But this is far, far, far from the truth of Scripture. Not only was Paul writing with apostolic authority under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, putting into writing that which he was self-consciously aware to be the inerrant Word of God, he was also exemplifying a warm, compassionate, pastoral heart for the whole church. Men, women, children, bond and free alike. Time and again, he refers to the members of the church as friends, as brothers in Christ. There is a, a familial, congenial caring and loving essence found in his letters, even when he is addressing error and sin in the church. If only we have eyes to see and ears to hear him rightly. The central focus we find is that Christ is preeminent in all he writes. Paul knows without any reservation or hesitation or flinching that he answers to and is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he simultaneously has a deep compassion for the lost and the hurting and those needing to bring fuller application of the gospel to their everyday lives. He also knows that he is dependent upon the church for their prayers and their support and their partnership in his missionary work. All the while knowing that in God's sovereign working, that he will need to labor with his hands during certain seasons of his ministry. It is this, this partnership, this fellowship, communion, sharing, and joyful participation in the Lord that Paul references throughout this letter. Six times, six times in this letter alone, we find his use of, of a family of words. We find the root of this in koinonia, and there are terms that convey a sense of communion, commonality, solidarity, and shared responsibility among family members or individuals. In chapter 1, verse 5, we see fellowship in the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 7, partakers of me, with me of grace. Chapter 2, verse 1, fellowship of the Spirit. Chapter 3, verse 10, fellowship of his sufferings. Chapter 4, verse 14, shared in my distress. 
and from our text this morning, shared with me in verse 15 concerning giving and receiving. Paul, you see, truly was a warm, loving father to the Philippian church and to all the churches in the best possible sense of that familial relationship. And so when we read Paul's letter, we need to keep this understanding of who he is as a loving father in his relationship to the churches and to Timothy and to Titus. And so as we conclude this epistle to the Philippians this morning, let us not lose sight of Paul's current situation. He is imprisoned. His future is unknown as he awaits his verdict. But his thoughts, what do we see in his thoughts? His thoughts are on abundance and riches and fullness. Paul's great desire for the church is for them to know what he knows, for them to share in the perspective that he has and to possess an abiding understanding that in Christ Jesus, all that is needed for life and godliness is provided in abundance. He seeks the fruit that abounds to their account. He wants for them to know that there is abundant fruit in the Lord. Paul, in other words is providing a perspective corrective for the church to propel them onward toward continued faithfulness. And as it turns out, that is exactly what we need as well. In our weakness, we often lose sight of the great things the Lord is doing in His church and among His people. As Paul was under house arrest, he was actively proclaiming the gospel to the palace guard. The support provided by the Philippians allowed Paul to press on under difficult circumstances, under the oppression of tyrannical government, under the rule of those who would set themselves over and against the true and living God. And so to encourage the church and to spur them on to continued faithfulness and to love and to good deeds, he acknowledges their particular love and their generosity. He assures them of his motivation for the fruit that will be born from their generosity. He also lets them know of their participation in this ministry as actually pleasing worship before the Lord our God. And he closes with a salutation that expresses the unity in the spirit, in the faith, in the gospel, in love, across great distances and vast cultural differences. And so as we turn to verses 15 and 16, Paul acknowledges and praises the Philippians for their particular love and generosity, writing, Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica... You sent aid once and again for my necessities. As Paul recalls his first encounter with the people at Philippi over a decade ago, he easily identifies the factor that ignited their zeal for missions, which in turn spurred their generous giving for missions. He describes those early days as, in the beginning of the gospel, Resuming his recollection at the beginning of the epistle when he expressed his thanks to God because of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. God's good news had broken into their lives 
and they have never been the same since. Despite the Philippians' extreme poverty, as Paul characterized it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2, their financial support for gospel mission was outstanding for its consistency and its generosity. Paul recalls that when he left Macedonia, heading south to the cities of Athens and Corinth, the Philippian church promptly sent a gift as his partners in giving and receiving. And this particular form of partnership and friendship was extraordinarily extraordinary because no other church except you only, he writes. This should not be understood as a criticism of other churches, but rather as a commendation to the Philippians and, and the special relationship that he shared with them. Actually, the Philippians had expressed their generosity even earlier than the donation that Silas and Timothy had brought to Corinth. Paul writes, even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. We understand then from this that the Philippians sent Paul at least two contributions during those few weeks that he was in Thessalonica, which we read about in Acts 17. Paul's point was first to emphasize how quickly the Philippians began sending in contributions, even, even in Thessalonica, a hundred miles away, and how consistently they continued to do so, sending two contributions in less than a month. Although there had been a, a hiatus in their donation, so to speak, for Paul's mission, he wants to reassure them that he has not at all construed their financial silence as a sign of their indifference, either toward himself or toward the gospel. He has not forgotten their track record from their very infancy as, as a new church in Christ, and they can rest assured that he never doubted their commitment and their readiness to express it in costly ways. And now that Epaphroditus has once again delivered their support, they have found a concrete way to convey their love for Jesus and for his missionary. Paul, in turn, is writing not only to update them about his situation, but also to express his appreciation for their gift, and even more so for the heart behind the gift. And Paul makes it clear that he was neither grumbling against them nor questioning God's providence before their gift arrived. Rather, he finds strength for every situation in Christ. And he is showing the Philippians that Jesus' sustaining grace is sufficient in every situation. And so we should see there is always, always abundance in the Lord Jesus Christ. And secondly, in verse 17, Paul provides his motivation for their generosity, writing, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. I think that we can infer that Paul was very careful in how he handled receiving a financial support from the churches he planted, even more so than we know of today. The giver of a gift in his day expected a gift in return or some measure of control over the person receiving the gift. And so in light of this fact, Paul was likely hesitant to put himself in situations where the church could attempt to assert some sort of particular leverage or special privilege from him. Furthermore, it was common in that day for teachers and philosophers and talented orators to travel from city to city, entertaining and teaching to earn a living. And then they would pick up and move on to the next town after the money dried up. 
Paul would have therefore wanted to clearly distinguish himself from such people and to make it clear that his preaching of the gospel was not a means to his own financial gain, but the communication of a message that transformed lives. And as the language of this passage indicates, even in thinking, thanking the Philippians, Paul is intentionally interpreting their financial partnership through the lens of the gospel. The apostle says that the Philippians' donation will yield fruit, yield fruit that increases and abounds to their credit. And so in banking terms, we perhaps could say the Philippians can therefore rest assured that their contribution has not really diminished their resources. Rather, they have put those very resources on deposit with the creator of all things. Their investment, so to speak, is secure, and it will bring a return beyond their imaginations. Of course, Paul will use the funds to buy food and to pay for his cost of living and whatnot. But in the Lord's treasury, the Philippians' gift is an investment that continues to accrue interest and produce abundant fruit in the Lord. And we should always, all of us should always desire spiritual fruit in our ministry. Of course, spiritual fruit requires the work of the Spirit, but God is pleased to use means to accomplish His purposes. As the Philippians give in faith, Paul desires and expects the Lord will use their provision in the furtherance of the gospel. Not only that, but Paul also knows that the Lord will also work in the hearts and lives of those who joyfully give. The darkness, the darkness of selfish consumption is burned away in the light of open-handed generosity. Christ-centered service bears fruit in both the one who is served and the one who is serving. And thirdly, in verses 18 through 20, we see Paul exemplifying the truth that the Philippians' gift find their right end in the worship of our triune God. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full and have, having received from Epaphroditus the things you sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Sweet-smelling aroma. Acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Thanksgiving, praise, doxology. This is worship language. And it, is, and it is the right end and aim of all of our giving and all our stewardship. The Philippians give in faith, and the result is worship. Paul stewards in faith, and the result is worship. There is abundance in God's provision, and through faithful stewardship of that provision, there is abundant fruit in the Lord. As he wrote to the Corinthians, Paul sowed the seed, Apollos watered, but the Lord brought the increase that produced the fruit. It is not about the one who plants. It is not about the one who waters the field, but it is all about the Lord, and therefore worship is its right end. 
These verses, sadly, are sometimes misinterpreted by health and wealth preachers who promise us material abundance if we exercise faith by making a donation to the ministry. The cruel, though unstated, implication of these inflated promises is that those who remain poor have only themselves to blame. Their unbelief and stinginess have locked up heaven's treasuries, they may assume. Paul, quite to the contrary, promises the poor but generous Philippians that his generous God will meet every need in Christ Jesus. God will do so even as he is meeting Paul's needs, enabling him to be content in feast or in famine. The measure of God's goodness and provision is not seen in the dollars or prestige possessed by the donor. It's not in lavish homes and full pantries, but rather it is seen in the glory due to the Father as he accomplishes his purposes in and through his people, providing that which is needed along the way. And so Paul concludes, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul then closes the letter with this salutation. Point number four. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. In this simple salutation, we see a glorious unity in the Spirit and in the faith and in the gospel and in the love that transcends both distance and culture. And this is exactly what we should expect, knowing that there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. It may be difficult for us to imagine the importance of this greeting that Paul writes. Though a prisoner in Rome, Paul was allowed to receive visitors into his house where he was detained. And these people, as these people came to Paul, they brought reports of the various churches and how they were doing. And remember, Paul wrote four of his epistles from prison. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Those letters would be taken back to churches or to an individual, expressing greeting from those who were around him. And that is what we see here. And so Paul was hoping to send this greeting to the Philippians with Timothy, who was there with him. Epaphroditus was also there. Other letters indicate that Tychicus, who was the bearer of the letters to the Ephesians and Colossians, had been with Paul. Philemon may well have been there also. Onesimus, the runaway slave who is the subject of Paul's letter to Philemon, was also there, as was Aristarchus, another longtime companion of the apostle. In addition, Paul was joined by a man named Jesus who was called Justice, and Luke. And so perhaps as many as eight people were with the apostle, with the apostle during his imprisonment. Now, whether they were there at all at the same time, we do not know. But we do see that Paul expresses greetings from those who are there with him. There is a, a solidarity in each of their hearts 
toward the Philippians, and so they would want to be included in this greeting. As Paul writes this final greeting in his own hand, we can imagine that he's looking around the room, and the other men with him there are affirmatively nodding their heads. There may even have been emotion in their voices and in their faces as they salute the Philippians. There is a circle of friendship and a tender love that they share in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is because of the overflow of their fellowship with one another that they provide this expression of love to this distant church that is so close to their hearts. And as Paul writes, we see an expanding circle of the greeting from the men who are around him to all the believers who are there in Rome, and especially those of Caesar's household. Can you imagine the joy in receiving such a greeting? A greeting from those who were within the palace guard, with part of Caesar's household, who had heard and believed the gospel. That, that's just an exciting report in and of itself, in just a simple greeting. The unity of the Spirit forged in the faith once delivered in the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ and bound by love is not limited by distance or restricted by culture or ethnicity. We should understand that there are no walls to be constructed between those who are in Christ. And as those who are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we should desire, we should long for, and we should even work for that unity that it may increase in both number and in depth. So I ask you this question. Do you desire this unity? Is it part of who you are? Is there a longing in your spirit to greet all the saints in Christ Jesus, whether they live across the street or on the other side of the world? I hope so. As Christians, we have a love for one another that transcends all the bounds of distance and culture. In the words of Christ, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so as we read this conclusion of the letter, Paul makes it clear that he founds, grounds, and surrounds everything he has written in grace. In the second verse of chapter 1, he opened the letter. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in the conclusion he writes, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. The abundance of fruit, the abundance of life and joy and peace in the Lord is all of grace. We need to take that truth deeply, deeply into our understanding and into our hearts and even into the application of the gospel in our lives. And I hope that everyone here this morning has an unshakable understanding that grace is God's unmerited, undeserved favor in the lives of his people. But if you don't, that's okay. It would be my great joy to speak with you one-on-one -on -one and face-to-face -face of God's amazing, abundant grace. You see, grace is the wellspring and the heartbeat of the Christian life. 
The believers in Philippi had already received saving grace at the time of their regeneration, but it doesn't end there. Paul desires that they know more of the sanctifying grace in their Christian walk, a grace that will enable them to live in a manner that glorifies God and to do so with joy and to promote the gospel everywhere they go. This work of preserving grace will continue into eternity in their glorification, of course. And so Paul wants them to experience it more fully in all they do and say and think in this life as well. <clears throat> and the same is true for us today. Your salvation and your sanctification are all of grace. You don't earn this favor and you certainly can't conjure it up. From within. Is something, is there something amiss in your life? Is there a besetting sin that is hindering your walk with the Lord? Are you unsure that Jesus is the Lord of your life? Are you in some way resisting the truth of God's Word and quenching the Spirit? Or are you walking joyfully in the light of His goodness and simply want to stay on the path and to be found faithful? Whatever the case, the answer is the same. The grace of the Lord Jesus in the gospel is what you need. It is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that saves you from your sinful rebellion and makes you part of God's family, set apart for his special purposes in the world. It is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ which initiated and sustained your fellowship in the gospel. It is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that enables you to rejoice in the advance of the gospel, even when the motives of those advancing it are not always pure. It is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that enables you to believe that to live is Christ and to die is gain. It is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that enables you to live out your status as a citizen in God's kingdom in a manner worthy of the gospel, even in the face of opposition, in the face of criticism, and in the very depths of discouragement. It is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that unites and empowers you to have the mind of Christ who humbled himself to the point of death on a cross so that you might experience God's peace. It is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that allowed you to see the glory of Christ, causing you to bend your knees and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that empowers you to work out your salvation in fear and trembling since God is at work in you for His good pleasure. It is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that enables you to be a light in this dark, so very dark world. It is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that empowers you to emulate godly models of Christ-like living that we read in the Word and that you live around and show them the honor due their role as Christians. It is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that has freed you from seeking status before God on the basis of your pedigree or performance, and instead to embrace the perfect righteousness that comes only 
from God. It is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that enables you to count all things as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus and His resurrection power at work in your life, even in the midst of suffering. It is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that summons you to press on to know more more of Christ, to know Christ more deeply every day as you await His return and the transformation of your lowly body. It is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that calls you to pursue unity in the body for the sake of the advancement of the gospel and because it is your testimony of love for one another that informs the unbeliever that we are Christians. It is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that enables you to rejoice rather than to worry and be anxious, granting you access to the throne room of God to let your request be made known to Him. It is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that grants you the peace that guards your heart and mind and enables you to put into practice what the Apostle taught. It is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that enables you to give generously to the advancement of the gospel, even to the point where it hurts, and as a result, see a heavenly harvest of abundant fruit. It is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that unites believers together across many miles and different locations in the worship of the one true God, regardless of station in life or denominational stripe. As the hymn writer put it, It's grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin, marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe. And so we see that this marvelous, joy-filled, Christ-exalting letter ends just as it had begun, with an emphasis upon the grace of God being even more fully bestowed upon His people. From the new birth to the new heavens and the new earth, the Christian life is entirely one of grace. Start to finish, it is all of grace. Now may we all, each and every one of us, go and walk in that grace with joy as those who have been transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ into a world desperately in need of that very same grace and bear abundant fruit in the Lord to the glory of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Father, as we humbly thank you for your word, we ask that you would pour out your grace upon us, your people, filling us with the joy of your salvation and making us zealous for the cause of Christ and the advance of the gospel in our individual lives, in our families, in this church, in the community of our neighbors, and all across the face of the globe. Bring forth, O Lord, an abundance of fruit in the Lord according to your perfect will. And this we ask for the glory of our God, for the beauty of the gospel, and for the advancement of your kingdom, for we pray in the mighty name, the victorious name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.